Ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the UI Breakfast Podcast. I'm your host, Jane Portman, and today our guest is Amy Bucher, an author and UX specialist focusing on behavior change design. And that's the topic for our conversation today. This episode is brought to you by UserList, a lifecycle messaging tool for your SaaS product. At UserList, our mission is to make your founder journey more enjoyable and less overwhelming. That's why we built an email automation tool that does exactly what you need. No more, no less. Manage your users, segment them, and get in touch throughout their journey, all based on their behavior. Try UserList free whenever you're ready at userlist.com. Hi, Emmy. Hi, Jane. Thank you for having me. We're very excited. There is such a pool of knowledge. We're looking forward to tapping in. Well, I'm excited to talk to you. I think this will be fun. Let's get started by sharing your background story and how you ended up writing a book on behavior change that we'll be discussing today. And what do you do for a living? So right now I work for a company called MadPow. We are a strategic design consultancy. And I would say we're, we're sort of like a design firm, but we bring behavior change into the way that we think about the problems that we solve. So we focus both in healthcare and financial services, and we call ourselves a purpose-driven agency in the sense that we look for projects where our work will help people. It's usually not about selling more products or what I would think of as a marketing activity, but is there some kind of way that this project will help people be healthier or be happier or be better prepared for retirement or to fulfill their goals? Those are the sorts of outcomes for our work that we look for. So it was one of the things that was very important to me when I was looking for my next career step to work for a company that I felt was trying to make a positive impact in the world. And I've been really glad to be able to do that here. What does your typical engagement look like? Do you help build software or processes or all of that? All of the above. So we are a client-based organization. Our projects almost entirely come from client organizations, and they come to us with all different sorts of problems. Oftentimes, there is a software solution that is part of the overall problem space. So there may be an app or a website that is part of what they are having their users or their customers or their patients interact with. But it's also very common that we're looking more broadly than that to the different services that support use of that digital intervention. So we do a lot of work, for example, with companies where they may have a digital experience, but also a call center. And we have to understand how those two different communication channels can support each other or not. And then the other thing about our work that I think is, it's not specific to behavior change design, but it's baked into the way that we approach behavior change, is we really need to understand people's behavior offline, even if we are ultimately delivering an app or a website or, you know, like a wearable, for example, because when we start a project, one of the very first things we do is we figure out what our desired outcomes from that project are. And those outcomes are behaviors. What are the things we would like our users to do? Working backwards from there, a lot of the behaviors don't take place online. Typically, we don't necessarily have projects where it, the behaviors are we want people to just create accounts and log in and use the online system. We also want them to then go and do something offline that they've learned from interacting with the app or you know that helps them get to a healthier state, for example. 
So we really do need to think about how their behaviors look in the real world and the context in which they might be using that digital intervention. So I really like that we have the opportunity to do this research that gets a great look into the lives of our users. You have a book coming out very soon or already <laughs> when the recording is out. Tell us about that. That's a deal with a traditional publisher and that's going out pretty big. Congratulations. Thank you. I'm really excited. It, it really doesn't quite feel real yet. And I was saying to you before, I, I haven't actually seen the physical copy of the book yet as we're talking today. So I think when I hold the book in my hands is when I'll really feel like I did it. But the book is called Engaged, Designing for Behavior Change. And it's being published by Rosenfeld Media. I put in an application to write the book or a proposal several years ago for two big reasons. Well, the real reason was they have a form on their website to submit a book proposal. I had some time and it looked like a fun thing to do, but I've always really liked Rosenfeld Media books. I think they're very well done. They're well edited. And I can say after having gone through the process of working with the editor at Rosenfeld that you know, she's amazing. Marta Justak, she was wonderful to work with and really helped me make my material so much stronger and so much better for the Rosenfeld audience. But the second reason I wanted to do it was I've kind of created my own career over the years. I, I was trained as a psychologist. I have a PhD in psychology. And the traditional career path for somebody with my training might be to become an academic, you know, to teach, to do laboratory type research. And I didn't do that. I, I started working in a digital agency right after I finished my degree. And as I figured out what the different activities were that happened within that agency setting, I started to become a behavior change designer. I started to do some of those traditional UX design activities like research and like strategy, but from my perspective as a classically trained psychologist. And so as I continue to work in the field and, you know, gain experience and start to, you know, I, I have a website where I, I used to blog a lot since I started writing a book. It's hard to be motivated to write quite that much. But there's a lot of historical stuff on the blog and I, I, you know, speak at conferences and meetups. And as I started to do more of these things where I had an outward facing persona related to this career that I'd been creating, I was getting outreach from LinkedIn or from people who had come to a, a meetup that I'd spoken at. And there was a lot of curiosity about what is behavior change design? How do you become a behavior change designer? And I found that I was doing a lot of one-on-one -on -one meetings and coffees and phone calls to a point where it was getting to be you know, I, I just didn't have the time to do it the justice I wanted to. And I wanted really badly to recommend a resource or a book to somebody and there wasn't one. So I thought there's a real opportunity here to write the book about what behavior change design is and how people, whether they're trained from psychology, behavior science, or if they're trained from more of the traditional UX design side, how they can start to bring those two fields together in their own work. Well, congratulations on putting this together. Can you share a few more sentences about how the process was unfolding and uh, whether the ideas that you came with really got modified by the end of the book writing process? So I think that the basic ideas that I brought into the book writing process didn't get modified so much as the way that I talked about them. Marta, my editor, does not have a behavior change background, but she's worked on most of Rosenfeld Media's books. So she knows a lot about the UX field and she knows a lot about the audience who will ultimately read this book. And she was really great at coaching me about times when I might be putting something in terms that were too esoteric or too specific to a psychologist and not general enough for my audience. 
And sometimes even just things like, you know, several of my early chapters were very long and she helped me break them into multiple chapters and really reach a, a cadence where it was more digestible for a reader. So it was it was more about helping me write a book that was appropriate for the audience and less about shaping the ideas themselves. Although I will say one of the most helpful things that Rosenfeld Media had me do, I had to do this as part of my very initial proposal, but they had me update it several times, was a competitor scan. They, they had me put together a list of other books about behavior change or design. Basically, you know, if someone were looking for, for your book, what are the other books that might come up in a Google search or an Amazon search? And so I put together this list and then I had to actually write a short description of how each one was different from what I was writing. And that ended up being really, I was very frustrated doing it at first because it was a lot of work. And there were a few times where I felt like, oh, it's obviously different. Why do I have to describe how it's different? But ultimately, I think it really helped me develop a bit stronger of an identity for what I wanted my book to be. And there were times in the writing where I could tell that I could go down a rabbit hole. I could go off on a tangent and write you know, a whole extra chapter on something that was maybe not quite central to what I wanted to say. But because I had that, that list, it gave me the confidence to say, you know what, it's okay to just say, there are other books out here that go into more detail on this topic, and you can read one of those. You're literally predicting my next question, uh, which was, were there other books uh, in the field that are well known and that inspired you in any way or during uh, while you were writing this book or earlier in your career? So I read a lot. That's my main hobby. And I, I actually, my favorite thing to read is fiction, which I, none of it contributed directly to the book. But one thing I want to say about reading fiction, when you're thinking about behavior change, and you're thinking about design, is that it gives you a lot of empathy for people. Because the whole idea of fiction is to step into somebody else's life. And often it's the life of somebody who's very different from yourself, who's going through an experience that you will never encounter in your own life. And so I think that there's a lot of professional value in my, you know, my hobby of reading for fun that has helped me just think more generously about the people that I design for. And I think it's a great hobby for anybody who's interested in people professionally. But in terms of more work-related books, I really like what I, I always call in kind of air quotes, well-done pop psychology books. So I think they tend to be a, a little bit more sophisticated than somebody who has zero interest in psychology might read, but they're definitely not academic textbooks. So um, for example, I really like Jane McGonigal's book, Super Better. I think that she does an excellent job of talking about motivational theory and how to design a motivational intervention that taps into the things that people value in a way that's super engaging. It's really, it's a, her own story of recovering from a traumatic head injury. Um, she had a very serious concussion that limited her ability to do her job and to live her normal life. And she invented this game super better to help herself through her recovery. And when she was better, she wrote a book describing it really creating a system that anybody can use for their own behavior change goals. And the science behind everything she writes in that book is so solid, but she writes it in this way that is very engaging as well. So that's an example of a book where I was inspired by the way that she made this difficult topic very accessible without getting rid of any of the validity or sacrificing any of the accuracy of the topic. Awesome. We're going to definitely link to that in the show notes. So if you were to recap the core idea of your book that makes it different from others, the special sauce or the angle that you're approaching, what would that be? 
So I think there's two pieces. One is that anybody can become a behavior change designer. You know, you don't have to be a psychologist like I am. That's a question I actually get a lot. I always laugh. I was on a panel at UXPA International, I think two summers ago, with a few other people working in UX who are also psychologists with PhDs. And the panel was, should I get a PhD in psychology to do UX? We all said no. (laughs) I'm glad I did it. It was fantastic training and it's made me a strong researcher. It's given me a good skill set that's valuable for my job, but it's it's a lot of work. It's, It's at least five years of work. And I think you have to have a passion for the actual, the PhD piece itself for that to be worthwhile. There is no reason why somebody who has a different set of training can't become a really skilled behavior change researcher. The information is out there. It's accessible to people. And I wanted to make sure that that felt really achievable to people who are interested in doing more behavior change in their design. The second piece that I think is my secret sauce. Uh, so I mentioned I had to do that that list of other books. And one of the things I found, I had read many of these books, but I hadn't thought of it this way. There's a strong history of cognitive psychology being used in design because it really goes in depth on how people think and how they perceive information. And so if you think about something like the visual hierarchy of a website, cognitive psychology will give you great information about, you know, best practices for that. So there's there's a long history of cognitive psychology being utilized in UX, and there are some really good books that make that accessible to people. But my training is more on the motivational side. So it's uh, more about what makes people tick when they're out in their daily lives, deciding whether or not to engage in a behavior. And I realized when I was doing that search that there really weren't also any books that heavily relied on that motivational science in the way that they talked about behavior change design. So that's another difference between what I did in my book and what I think is out there otherwise. Let's take a very practical problem from the field of our listeners, which is building a software product and trying to help users adopt the desired behavior of you know, using the product and improving their life with that. And that's no trivial task, of course. How would your learnings from the book help our listeners in that journey? You're right. It is a practical question and it's one we encounter all the time. And I have the very frustrating answer of we need to break it down and figure out exactly what is making it difficult for people to do that behavior or what might make it difficult. So I like to always start my projects with research if I can and look at what people are doing right now related to that behavior, or sometimes it's the absence of that behavior. So I've done a lot of projects, for example, because so much of my work is in healthcare, where you have somebody who has a new medication or a new health condition, and now they have to do behaviors that really they have not done before. And so it's about understanding where in their lives that could fit. So there's a method called COMB in the behavior change wheel. It's C-O-M-B, and it stands for Capability, Opportunity, Motivation, Behavior. I use this method a lot in my work, especially early in a project, to identify where there may be something that either presents an obstacle to a behavior or potentially could help promote the behavior. Because sometimes there are things that are in people's lives and their routines that you can grab onto and use those as a way to promote a behavior. So I want to make sure that I I take a really good landscape and figure out where those obstacles and opportunities are. Combi and the Behavior Change Wheel, it's actually all open source. It comes out of University College London. Professor Susan Mickey is one of the lead researchers on that. 
And what I really like about it is it gives this great organizational framework to ask your research questions and identify whether there might be capability, opportunity, or motivation issues at play that are either leading somebody to not perform a behavior or could lead somebody to perform that behavior more if they were addressed or amplified. So it's a really great tool to use, especially early in the research. And then with the behavior change wheel piece of it, they've reviewed thousands of published studies of behavior change interventions, and they've been able to create a taxonomy that identifies if you see a particular type of problem in a person's situation. So for example, if they have a physical capability problem, they are not physically capable of performing the behavior for some reason. Well, they can actually say, this is the set of interventions. This is the set of solutions that past research has found tend to be effective in that situation. So it's a great way to narrow down your solution set early on. And then once you have those categories of design, you can start to do the more detailed specific design activities that are a little bit more reliant on what is this product or what does my customer require or um, those sorts of things. So I really like it as a way to organize the research and then come to some design solutions or at least categories of design solution early on. I find the motivation piece especially intriguing. And one of the favorite ideas that you mentioned before was that the, the strongest for, form of motivation is internal and everything else is not so important in the long run. Is that true? So for long lasting behavior change, yes, motivational quality is the term that you would use in psychology and more intrinsic forms of motivation, more internal personal forms of motivation. Those are the long lasting ones. So in my work, for example, with healthcare, oftentimes we're asking people to do a new behavior or a change in behavior for the rest of their lives. They may need to take a new medication or If for, take for the example of diabetes, uh, they may need to measure their blood sugar for the rest of their lives. And so we really need to help people connect with that motivation that's meaningful for them if we want that to be effective. But I think there is a role for the more short-term motivation as well. So those more extrinsic forms of motivation. And I think one area where there's some potential to use those is perhaps getting people interested in dipping their toe into a new behavior. So you think about something like, um, you know, actually, I became a runner relatively late in life. I'm an avid runner now, but I didn't start running until I was in my late 20s. And when I first got involved in it, one of the main reasons I was interested is because I could sign up for a race and run with a friend. That's a little bit of an extrinsic reward. Um, it's really not about the running itself. Over time, as I got better at running, I connected with this sense of how good it made my body feel and it really helped me manage my stress and, you know, it was helping me get into my, my 30s with a little bit more of a you know, physical vigor. So those were much more personal and long lasting reasons. But initially at the start, I was interested in part for those external reasons. So I think that you can use both types of motivation in your toolkit as long as you're thoughtful about ultimately bringing people back to that long lasting and personal motivation. Is accountability one of the other popular topics? Is it related to motivation? Is it one type of other types of motivation? How do they relate? Yeah, it's not a motivation in and of itself. And it, it does it, it could be used to be more of an extrinsic type of motivator, or it could also be related to internal motivation. So I mentioned motivational quality. That comes out of a theory called self-determination theory of motivation. And that term by itself is not familiar to a lot of people, but if you've ever heard of extrinsic and intrinsic motivation and the authors DC and Ryan, 
that's their work. That's the scientific side of their work that they've been doing for about 40 years or so. And what they've discovered is that it's not necessarily whether you have a lot or a little of motivation, it's what type of motivation, what's that motivational quality. So if you take something like accountability, which I, I would call an intervention tactic or an intervention function, perhaps behavior change technique, that could be used in a way that is really that more extrinsic motivation where you might have somebody who is keeping watch over you and wagging their finger if you do something wrong and you are doing the behavior because you want to get that positive reaction from them or you're fearful of the negative reaction. That's an extrinsic type of motivator and it's not necessarily long lasting. What you might see in that sort of situation is if you know that person, your accountability partner will not know if you don't do the behavior, if they're out of town or for some reason they just don't have awareness of what you're doing, you may not do the behavior. When my husband goes out of town, I definitely do things at home that I don't do when he's there. (laughs) (laughs) But there's also a version of accountability that taps more into those intrinsic interests about, you know, I want to be the type of person who does this sort of thing. Or I see a lot. It sounds cheesy, but I really see this a lot. I'm doing research interviews at work right now. And I just had somebody yesterday talk about this unprompted. They will say, like, I want to be this type of parent for my child. And so it's important to me that I behave this certain way so that I am this type of person, so that I really am who I want to be. And when you, that is a different sort of accountability. It's not quite the same as somebody looking over your shoulder and making a check if you completed the behavior, but it is a type of accountability. I'm doing this for somebody else. But because it connects to that personal value and something that's meaningful to you in a really real and deep way, it's more long lasting. So I think accountability can work both ways. And, you know, I think as a tool, it has a lot of potential because one of the things that people really need in order to feel motivated and sustain that motivation is a sense of connection to others. So accountability is a nice tool to give people that sense of connection while also giving them uh, a reason to engage in the behavior. Are there any interesting examples in your practice related to accountability or motivation? Yes. I mentioned this to you before. It's not my example, but I really love it. And I did mention it in the book. Aileen Hallsworth, who is uh, heads up Pattern Health, I interviewed her in the book and she was kind enough to give me a screenshot, which I included, of something that the Pattern Health app does, which is once somebody onboards they have, they recommend a series of health behaviors that that person should engage in to achieve their goals. And it creates really a contract for them that lists out, these are the behaviors that you agree to do as part of your participation in pattern health. And people actually sign the bottom of that screen, just like they would sign a contract. And it doesn't get sent anywhere. It's not put on file with a lawyer or anything like that. (laughs) I suppose you could screenshot it and put it on social media. But really, all the program wants you to do is go through that psychological exercise of signing the contract to create that inner sense of accountability. And I think it's a really neat trick because I often work with clients who are interested in some of these deeper behavior change exercises where you ask people to think deeply about what matters to them and how do these behaviors connect. And they will say they have technological limitations. So, you know, we can't do a natural chat with somebody, for example, if they tell us what their goal is and then give them feedback that uses their same language and really understands what they mean. And that's fine because what you really want is for people to go through the mental exercise of thinking for themselves, what are my goals? What's important to me? And why are these behaviors in support of those goals? Why do I want to do these things? It doesn't matter if you as the technology company are capturing that data or using that data. 
all it really is important is you're getting people to go through that thought exercise and internalize that way of thinking. So what I love about the example with Aileen and Patent Health is it, it really is in a way low tech, but I think ultimately it'll be very effective at getting people to follow through on those behaviors. As people who do software, we have a limited range of things we can do to try and affect people's behavior. We can send them an email. We can send them a link to knowledge base. We can offer a phone call and a few other very limited number of things. Is it more about our methods and the tools that we have? Or is it about developing a more overall strategy and deciding when to apply them? Not so much about being creative with them. I think it's more about the strategy as opposed to the toolkits. I have seen some very simple interventions be very effective because they're used in a way that makes a lot of sense for what people are experiencing. There's a company called ME Solutions that was acquired by Walters Clore, so they, they no longer exist as a standalone company. But they did this very informative health education that was really accessible to people. And they would design these very simple interventions to get people to engage in preventative health behaviors. So one of the things they did that I thought, again, was very clever, not a particularly sophisticated tool. When people received an automated phone call from their doctor's office reminding them that they had to schedule a mammogram, instead of just ending the call, it automatically connected them to the scheduling office. And they found that just making that connection automatic at the end of the reminder call led to this huge increase in the number of women who both made the appointment for the mammogram and then actually followed through and went to the doctor's office. So that's, that's actually a little bit of accountability again. You make the appointment and you actually show up later on. Having that call connection thing in terms of technology, it's, it's really, you know, that's old technology. It's very basic. I don't think it's particularly sexy, but it was so effective because you think about what's going on when someone receives that reminder call they might not be in a place where they can take down a note in their calendar and say, oh, I've got to call my doctor and schedule this appointment. They may not have their doctor's office phone number handy. Um, so that's another step where they'd have to go and look up the phone number. They have to remember to do it. You're eliminating all of those interim steps that might make that behavior hard. And instead, you're just automating it almost. So I, I think that's an example of where they looked at the strategy and that overcame the fact that the tools in their toolkit maybe were not the most sophisticated ones. Um, in, in the software world, there are different kind of models that we use. So one of them is, let's say, having a free trial, and then after that, you can or cannot convert into a customer. And another model is freemium, where essentially you become a customer in the free plan, and then the owner of the product, all, all they can do is like poke and prod the user and all they can do is basically remind themselves about their existence and that's about it. Are there any methods do you think can be effective in this kind of scenario uh, based on your scientific studies and experience? So I, I think this is a case where the way that you outline what participation in the program looks like for somebody makes a big difference in their willingness to either um, subscribe at the end of a free trial or engage in the freemium and perhaps upgrade at a certain point. 
So one thing that I noticed, and I, I audited quite a few apps and websites and programs as part of my book writing process. I have a huge folder of different screenshots and notes. So I've seen a lot of examples of how people encounter this sort of thing. And I think a thing that some companies try to do that ends up being very counterproductive is they, you know, they write this beautiful story about the benefits that their product provides. This is the best thing ever. It's going to change your life. It's so easy. And it's so easy is a big one that drives me crazy because behavior change often... <laughs> it's never easy. <laughs> I won't say never, but it's rarely easy. And there's very little that any app is going to do to make it easy. I think when, when it is easy, it's because you're lucky and the things you need to do fit in with your life in, in a unique way that works for you. So, But the ones that I've seen that are more successful will say, you know, we can offer you scientifically based tools and processes to try we're going to need you to work hard. We're going to need you to do the things that are recommended. But if you do, you can expect these sorts of results. So creating those very clear, very realistic expectations can help people become more interested. It creates credibility, first of all, and creating trust is such an important thing. I think it's a step that people overlook all the time. And we have, unfortunately, so many examples of well-known companies or brands that betray people's trust. You know, they don't protect their users' data or they use it in some way that was not understood by their users at sign up and that does not feel like a respectful way to treat that relationship. So most people don't come into a new app with this trust already in place. It has to be earned. And one of the ways you can do that is by being very truthful, very realistic. And of course, you do want to be positive as well. You want to make sure that it sounds like a thing people want to do. But overpromising tends to shoot. You know, it doesn't work. It, it backfires ultimately. Are there any other interesting findings from that research process of yours where you reviewed multiple software products? One thing that really struck me, it makes sense, but anything that has to do with weight loss, a lot of those products just assume that weight loss is always a good thing. And I was not happy to see that. So if, if the product asks you about your goals during onboarding and it knows that you're interested in weight loss, then I think it's, it's fine to congratulate you on weight loss as you enter data over time. But I did notice there were a number of products that did not ask about those goals and then would congratulate you, know, you on data for, for reduced weight. And that is not, I mean, there's eating disorders and body image issues for one thing, but there are also negative health reasons why a person might lose weight. So if you had a serious illness, you might lose weight. And there are positive health reasons why a person might gain weight. So for example, if you were expecting a child, your, your weight would increase over time. So I thought that was a really interesting assumption baked into some, some apps. Um, and those did not tend to be the big name, brand name apps, but it was surprisingly common. Interesting. If we sort of decompose this, it's about not making assumptions based on solely numbers and the metrics that you see inside somebody's account, right? Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Awesome. As practitioners, are there any research activities that you can recommend at all stages of product development that we could undertake to uncover those strategies and, and ways to, uh, to improve motivation? for our users. Yeah, I my favorite interview or my favorite research method is the interview. I, I spoiled my own punchline there. Uh, <laughs> I love doing interviews because one-on-one uh, -on -one interviews because people really are, I think in many ways, the, the best 
judges of their own lives and their own needs. And you can just learn a lot from talking with somebody in a semi-structured way for 30 minutes or an hour, not just about the specific product or the behavior, but about their experiences a little bit more broadly, understanding what they value, what matters to them, what their typical day looks like. I did one project around medical billing where we sat with people in their homes and asked them to show us where they sat to pay their bills. And we learned so much about how they organize their paperwork and think about payment that really affected what we ended up recommending to our client. And I, I was not expecting that to be effective, but you, you can learn a lot through those conversations. And I think they um, can benefit you at all stages of the process. So when you're first starting a project and you're trying to understand the problem space, and you're trying to understand what solution sets might work, interviews are very helpful. And then later on, once the product is out in the world and people are using it, you can also use interviews to uncover how it's working for people and is it having the intended effects. But I also really like to use them midway as you're working on development. So sharing prototypes or screen mock-ups, or even you can use descriptions, but something that communicates what you're building, what is this product going to be? And getting people's reactions, um, we, we sometimes call that in my work, either usability or desirability studies. And what you're trying to learn with those particular interviews is, does this solution that we're building actually fit with your life? Does it meet your needs? Is it appealing to you where you might go out and try to use it? Because we know that you can make the most effective intervention in the world, but if people don't use it, then the effect is zero. So we really want to make sure that whatever we're building doesn't just work, but people want to use it. Are there any methods for conducting this type of interview? Maybe mistakes to avoid? Well, I will say, first of all, for methods, we, we actually do a lot of these remotely. And I think that that works pretty well for the most part, because you're able to get a more diverse sample of people to talk to. And I, I can say one mistake actually related to that. I did a study probably about a year ago where we were recruiting people and we ended up with a regional bias in our recruitment. And we found that there were some really specific things about the area of the United States that our respondents lived in that was biasing the response patterns. So we ended up having to recruit more people than we'd originally planned so that we could get a greater variety of geographic region. So I like using the remote technology in order to get that diversity. But I will say some of my research is around really sensitive topics. So we might talk to somebody who has an incurable condition. And that's that can be really hard to talk about if you're ill and you don't expect to get better. And so in those sorts of situations where it's a sensitive topic, sometimes there's value in making the trip and sitting down face to face with somebody so that you can really have that empathy and be in the room with them instead of doing it remotely, even though it does add cost and time to a project. So it's a little bit of a judgment call, but I think um, depending on the topic, it can add value. The medical billing is another example because finances are so sensitive. And in the United States, medical bills are the top cause of bankruptcy. So they, they could be really enormous bills that are life-changing to people in a negative way. And when we were talking to people, we wanted to be able to convey that sensitivity and really see their nonverbal reactions so that we could react appropriately too. We found it was worthwhile in that situation to sit in the room with somebody instead of being on the phone. Can you apply the classic uh, customer interview techniques here about asking open questions, basically stop talking yourself so that the other person can talk more and don't avoid awkward silences, etc. Do these work? Are there any other tips that you could give? 
Yes, those absolutely work. And it's one of the, I remember my very first job after grad school, the hardest thing for me to learn was not to, and when you're talking with a friend, you might talk over each other a little bit to convey understanding or empathy. You make little sounds like, "Uh uh-huh, or you might laugh when the other person's talking. And when you're doing a research interview, it was very hard for me to learn to avoid those things because they may change the way a person responds. They also degrade the recorded quality, which is a little bit less important. (laughs) But one of the things I I really like, in addition to what you mentioned, sitting with silence and open-ended questions, I get a lot of mileage out of stems that are not questions, but ask for more information. So tell me more about that or say more about that. Those to me work really well because they are neutral And they give the person an opportunity to add more detail and talk further. So I I would say I find myself going there quite a bit. There is a clinical technique called motivational interviewing that psychologists use that I, I'm not a, I'm not trained as a psychology clinician, but I've been trained in motivational interviewing over the years because it influences the way that you might talk to people, even in building an intervention. And we, we will do things like train call center employees and using some parts of motivational interviewing. And I think it also applies to research interviews where one of the, the core rules of motivational interviewing is you don't fight with people or disagree with people. You, you let them kind of stand in their truth. And you might ask them to play devil's advocate, but you don't push back on them because that tends to get people to really commit to the first thing they said, whether or not they really agree with it. I found motivational interviewing is really helpful. And I do have a little bit about that in the book as well. There are popular frameworks like jobs to be done. And also one of our previous guests on the show, Joel Klatke, who's specializing in case studies. Well, his favorite thing is called before, during, and after when you're interviewing somebody about the experience or uh, with, with a certain tool. Do you have methods like that? Do you think these are effective? We actually do use jobs to be done quite a bit. I don't always call it that, but really trying to answer the question, what are you really trying to accomplish here? Because oftentimes what that does, and I think this is the intention of jobs to be done in the Christensen framework, is it breaks you free of the solution set and gets you more focused on the problem. So it gives you a little bit more freedom and more creativity. A lot of my focus in doing interviews with people is trying to understand what it is they're really trying to accomplish. And so that's why we might ask them a lot of questions about other areas of their life, for example. Or a technique that we use a lot is called participatory design. We tend to do participatory design in group settings, although we have some activities where we can do it one-on-one. And that's where we give people creative activities to do. And we have people come into the room and they'll see us set up and they will laugh and they'll say, this is the silliest thing. Because we'll have people make collages or we do one activity called magic object where we'll say, if you could create a magic object that solves this problem, what would it be? And we give them 30 minutes, 45 minutes to create something using crafting materials. And it feels very silly. But what we find is then when we have them talk to us about what they built and how it solves the problem, they're really telling us what that job to be done is. So I did one of these sessions for a health plan around their wellness program a while ago. And one of the things that we kept seeing in the magic objects was that people were looking for positive feedback from their health and wellness app. And a lot of health and wellness apps, like they'll typically tell you if you've reached your step goal, for example, but especially around food, it's either neutral feedback where you just see a number and there's no real context given for it. You just kind of know, did you meet your calorie goal or like how many calories did you eat? 
or you'll get negative feedback because you've eaten more than you were supposed to, or you've eaten a food group that's not recommended. There isn't really a lot of positive feedback. And so that was a really important finding that we took forward into our solution design. And it was really based on that idea of what are people really looking for, not just the functionality, but like what, how do they want to feel after they use this? So what was the solution that you came up with the positive feedback? I'm curious. So this is the, the drawback of working as a client agency. We were not part of the implementation, although we do have a really good relationship with this, this client. And part of what they've done with what they ultimately built is they have some live coaching built into it. So they have basically a, a live human being who's able to give people that pat on the back and that positive encouragement. And then they've licensed some third-party apps. And one of the criteria that they used to pick which ones was, is there any positive feedback in here? So I, I can't say for certain that every single one of those partner apps does have a positive feedback mechanism, but I know that that was something they were deliberately looking for as a result of the recommendations from the research. If you were to give some quick advice for our listeners, what can they do starting today to start practicing behavior change design in their products? What would be top two activities they can engage in? So top one, I think, is talking to users, whatever you call them. And I know there's been a lot of debate about, you know, is the term users the right one? I'll just use it here for simplicity. Whoever will ultimately be using whatever it is you design, the more you can talk to them and have conversation with them and really coming from a place of curiosity and wanting to learn, that will benefit what you ultimately design. And I think that by itself, that goes a long way towards being a behavior change designer is really having that curiosity about people and listening to them firsthand. And then second, I would say read, read a lot, read a lot of different things. So I think there's so much value in reading professional books about user experience and design and research and psychology but also reading for fun, reading fiction, reading history, because so many, you know, there are lots of things historically that are relevant to the products and services that we design today. You never know exactly when something that you read will end up being useful to you. But I think the more you can be curious about the world and keep your eyes open and look for new things to learn and new ways to think, the better off you'll ultimately be. That's wonderful advice. Thank you so much. One of the books I can recommend on the topic is Why We Do What We Do. And I think it's by one of the authors that you mentioned, DC and somebody else. This was recommended as must-have reading by Samuel Hulick, who specializes in user onboarding. Is this book on your agenda or is it like from an entirely different field? No, actually, that's a great example. I so <laughs> I have a very nerdy reason why I don't actually recommend that book, which is that I specialize in motivational psychology. So I tend to read the primary research papers there. But that's a wonderful resource for people who don't have that comfort with the original research. DC and Ryan are both, I mean, they're the best of the best. They originated this way of thinking about motivation that has such a strong scientific base. You absolutely cannot go wrong reading any of their books. Okay, awesome. That, that, that's encouraging. Where can people find your new book and your more of your writing online? Yeah, so my book will be released by Rosenfeld Media on March 3rd, and it can be ordered directly from the Rosenfeld Media site, or it will be available on Amazon. I don't think it is quite yet, but once it's released after March 3rd, I think it will be. And then I have a website, amybphd.com, where, as I said, I used to blog quite a bit. It slowed down because I was you know, busy writing a small book. But I'm hoping to be more active there again. And I've linked to things like, you know, podcasts and interviews and presentations I've given. So there's a lot of material that is linked there that might be useful to people. Fantastic. Thank you so much once again for sharing 
all this wisdom and uh, useful advice. I hope your book launch goes amazing and have a wonderful rest of your week. Thanks, Jane. You too. It was really great talking to you.